I get a lot out of it because I learn a hell of a lot about what's going on in Web3. And then, you, then you're in this really neat position where you're, you're kind of looking at pieces of the Web3 jigsaw and unnaturally able to put different elements of the narrative of Web3 together and see where patterns are emerging, which is really interesting. Okay, so today we've got Andy Lark, who is by far the OG for us as a mentor um, in the Basecamp program. He actually has a, a long history. He's a true web OG, actually. Web yeah. one, two, and three. Yeah, I'm old and tired. And we're going to get into a little bit as to as to why why you're here in, in Web three when you could be you know retired and relaxing. You've worked with several hundred of the teams that have gone through the program across all programs over several years, almost since the accelerator's inception. Yeah. And so, we really want to get into firstly your background, why Web three why I think it's important. Then a little bit about what you do as a mentor. I know you, technically, there's quite a specific thing that you come in for, but I know that the founders get a a lot more from you. I think you describe yourself as a provocateur, as an agitator. Troublemaker. And I think bringing truths to teams gracefully in a a productive way, I know they, they, they really value that and again, consistently you know top ranked mentor and then i know you go on and and build relationships with many of the teams afterwards both as a continued advisor angel investor and various other things so we'll get into all that but first let's learn a little bit about about andy you know so web one web zero yeah yeah i mean I go, one, I go way back to like the i'm so old and tired now i go, I go sort of way back to like the very early days of the pc era right when literally we we were really excited because we had notebook computers with batteries now that could last three hours and then watched the sort of the evolution of the net, built one of the biggest e-commerce sites in the world when BBC was just taking off, right? And we, we were talking about it just before this, right? People forget like every one of these waves that you see of technology requires traditionally an enormous infrastructure build, right? And back at the birth of the internet, it was like we were running around trying to lay optical cables just to support the damn thing. And Web3 is is still in the middle of its infrastructure build. And now you're seeing the AI infrastructure build. We've got this tectonic shift from the CPU to the GPU. And we're now seeing these enormous GPU farms being built that consume the same power footprint as Ireland or whatever. And so we're in this like epically exciting phase now where where everything is being created that we needed probably three to five years ago out of sheer necessity so it's pretty it's pretty exciting it's pretty exciting being in the thick of it and around it once you once you get sort of riding the waves in your blood you kind of can't get it out you know so what was the point so you know having been through these cycles and i guess previously a lot of time you're kind of playing catch up with the infrastructure actually the demand's kind of you know ahead of the supply in a way we're kind of in a slightly different situation where there's a, there's a huge amount of infrastructure being built, a huge amount of capacity, but it's actually not that much or not enough happening at the application layer with kind yeah. of you know consumer applications or even enterprise applications that are creating a lot of demand. So firstly, like what, what brought you into Web3? And this was several years ago. What's kind of kept you in Web3 across those cycles and where yeah. do you think we are now? Well, I, I started working on my own Web3 businesses, right? So we, we've been building a quite a lot. It's now a very large Web3 as its foundation loyalty business. And so I was in the thick of doing it myself and looking at the convergence of sort of blockchain tokenization, decentralized 
currencies, all of this, all these forces coming together. And so that really intrigued me. And then being able to see that this was real, like there's a visceral problem to be solved here. This notion of, if you look at the internet era, it was fundamentally driven by this, the, the mass centralization of everything, right? Where it, And what happens is pre-internet, we were in the network era, which was actually about fragmentation and decentralization of everything. And so now we're back in that phase where we're going, actually, that centralized construct is not good. It's not good. So we've gone from decentralized to, to bundling again yeah. into platforms, yeah. and now we're unbundling again. And now we're unbundling again. And you're right in that the thing that kind of excites me still about Web3 greatly is it is just finding its way into the everyday platforms that we run and operate. So you look at guys like Boson and what 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 they're, what they're doing with the protocol and the whole notion of fidgetal and the whole the whole idea of how do I connect tokenized assets to physical assets as a major brand. That's a big problem to solve, right? And then you look at people like Functionland with storage, and you just go intuitively. That makes all the sense in the world. Like I've got my little Functionland box sitting on my desk at home, and beautiful little thing as well. Yeah, and, and you just go, "This is perfectly logical, right? This this makes every that we." So, what I get excited about is then how do you take stuff that is really exciting like that and get it into the mainstream, get it scaling, get it get it get, getting it working. You look at what Esther's done with Hundo; it's really exciting and sort of building the next generation of talent required to fuel the Web three economy. There's just so much exciting stuff going on, and you're just like, "Hey, who wouldn't want to be part of that?" Yeah, and obviously you're a big part of that. You know, you and, and the wider mentor network, you know, whilst we have all these specialisms in-house, we've got these kind of learnings, these, these processes that we developed, you know, without mentors like you who bring, bring both industry expertise or a kind of a, a particular specialism, we kind of can't, com- can't complete that. But I think it's an interesting point, the kind of state that a Web3 founder arrives at the accelerator. I mean, the first thing we find, and I'm sure you probably find it the same way, is the mere fact that they acknowledge they need help shows humility and yep. often is a great indicator of a good founder. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, I would have joined an accelerator. If, if, when, I was, when I was younger, I kind of almost was embarrassed to yeah, admit yeah. I didn't know things. But I'm the same as you. I'm like, what? Like you? Yeah, yeah. and I, you have to learn the hard way and that comes with a cost, time, money. So already like a founder arriving saying, you know what, I need help. Maybe a bit overwhelmed. You know, you talk about swimming in the lane, sometimes they're drowning. Yeah. You know, you think about being a Web3, being a founder is hard enough generally, uh, early stage uh, founder, and then you add all the complexity of Web3 with the regulatory risk, technical risk, business model risk. So we often find them overwhelmed. So, you know, you as a founder, you come in at a, a particular point. I, I know you kind of meet them often a little bit earlier, but we kind of run these 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 workshops with them and then you kind of do a lot of follow-up and hand-holding post-workshop. What's the same? So firstly, what, what, what is the thing that you do in your workshop? And what, what do you find is the same, the constant? So what's unique about Web3 and the things that you have to teach them? And then what, what are the constants that you always have to help an early stage founder with? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, so I, I really focus on two things with the groups, right? One is getting the messaging and positioning and the narrative around the brand, right? So this is more of the how you think about positioning your offering your product to the market and getting that right. Most of them haven't given that much thought. They, they, they kind of intuitively are trying to express that, but they haven't. They don't have mental constructs 
for developing that on their own. And largely none of them have come from a marketing background. They've all come from a product background, right? So right. they're like, I don't understand any of this. Or stuff. even lower in the stack yeah, on yeah, a yeah. very technical yeah. problem. Yeah. So that's the first thing I do. That's the first big workshop. And then the second one we run is one on pitching and how to turn that into a narrative to pitch investors. And I probably sit through a couple of hundred investor pitches a year and I've raised billions of dollars myself, so I know what it's like. And look, to be honest with you, I fucked it up enough to know, oh, you definitely don't want to do that. Like, right. I, I've got scars, don't do that. Yeah. You know. So those two together are really connected because you, you, you're, you're not just building, at this early stage, you're not just building a message for the market, you're building it to appeal to investors, right? So the concept in Web3 is this idea that there are really two classes of investors there is the web3 cohort of investor that you know if, if you if you are in the outlier you have an unnatural advantage in the market because there's no one more plugged into that cohort than outlier right and also that investor is pre-qualified because they have worked with outlier over the years they're like i trust these guys or i, I at least know what my risk profile is with them right right, right. So that's a huge advantage for a company in the cohort. So that, that's the first thing that's unique to Web3 is you've got this group of people who are like, oh, I can do a safe, I could do tokens, I could do this, I can do that. You're not going to run into that second cohort, which is the more traditional angel or VC investor who just wants to know what's their slice of the action, how much cash do you need, where do I write a check, where do I send it to, how, what, what kind of accountability is there going to be? And so... Web3 investing has definitely shifted in the past, I would say, 12 months. It is a, it is absolutely brutal out there, right? For everybody, for everybody, right? But capital is always deployed, right? Capital is always being deployed. So the question is, how do you get your narrative and your story right? And how do you understand how to pitch so that you do secure it? And and that's what we focus on, right? And And... It's always really interesting because it's very rare you meet anyone coming through the cohorts that's actually ready to raise. You know, you you, you don't really, probably the only one I've ever bumped into that was really buttoned down on it, like really buttoned down was probably Esther at Hondo, who, yeah. who's done it many times. So right. she's like, she, but she was the one who wanted to learn the most, right? yeah, no, she, right. which yeah. is yeah. funny too, because yeah. she's like, oh, maybe I can make it better, you know? And they did pivot quite a lot in their yeah, positioning. Yeah, you know, yeah, they, yeah. they really leaned into, you know, before they were kind of almost Web3 curious, mm. how could it augment a relatively traditional digital, you know, e-learning -e learning platform to becoming a full-blown metaverse proposition with yeah. open metaverse Web3. Yeah, know, yeah, exactly. It, you know. Yeah. So it is, it is absolutely fascinating. The diversity of the companies, the styles of the individuals, the other thing that makes the outlier cohorts really unique is their global nature. Yeah. That, that's really unique. So, you know, occasionally I'll listen in to other companies who are running similar kind of constructs and they'll ask me to listen in, not as a mentor, because I only do that for outlier, but they'll ask me to listen as an investor and stuff. And it's really fascinating. It's a very monoculture. It's like, yeah. these are all companies in New York or these are all companies in Toronto. Whereas the other unique thing about Outlier is I'll get on a call in this Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Lisbon, Berlin, and India, all on the call. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes in the same team. Right? Yeah, and you know, sometimes, yeah. and, and inevitably, yeah. inevitably in the same team. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the the commitment to running these virtually, the programs virtually, whilst it makes things harder, and you do miss some of the 
the personal time and, and perhaps even accidents happening, you know, as people kind of bump into each other in a, in a physical space, the benefit really is that we can work with anybody anywhere to kind of, you know, unlock that 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 potential that that, that might might be able to take something. I think something that's to right. I think I think definitely can. And I think the reality is being virtual first is a is a huge advantage because these companies, what's one of the many unique things about Web3 is these people are all nomads. It's in their DNA, right? You, you're talking to them one day and they're in Lisbon and the next day, oh, I've moved to Costa Rica. You know, well, what? I'm very jealous of that whole lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So if we look at the the, the kind of advice, when, you, when you're helping a team and they're thinking about their positioning and their narrative and how to tell it, you alluded to it earlier, there's actually multiple stakeholders. You've kind of got the investor class, and within that, maybe even subsets, perhaps a little bit less now with the retail investors. Whilst we're in a bear market, it, it's kind of less less uh, prevalent. But then you have you have users. There might even be a B two B to C proposition, so it kind of has to carry through an enterprise context. How do you help teams manage getting their story across, their message across to different stakeholder groups simultaneously when their marketing team might be like the founder? Yeah. I think the, the, the thing I emphasize to them is you only have time for one message. That's it. The investor wants to understand and believe that this is going to work in the market. Any good investor is actually not looking at it from the point of view of, I'm an investor, sell me as an investor. They're a, a good investor is looking at it going, how's that going to play in the market? Do I believe they'll be able to sell this to other people, right? So you, you inevitably come back to this idea of it's one message for everybody but you're expressing different content packaged around it. And a lot of these a lot of these teams don't have a lot of communication sophistication. So they don't and little and little things that outlier helps them with. Like I keep saying to them like the number of times I will sit on these big investor day things with big VC funds and stuff. And there'll be a bunch of us. We all know each other. So we'll all end up in a Slack channel and someone will text me and go, get in the Slack channel and we're all there. And someone will say, oh, man, I really dig these guys. What do you think? And I'm like, you dig them because they've got really good looking slides. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you dig their, their story shit and, and no one's ever going to buy this. You're dreaming, right? But they look really good and polished. Yeah, and, and you polished sort of, turds. Yeah, <laughs> and I keep saying to the guys, so you're not polished turds, but you, you will be seen as an unpolished turd if you don't actually even present it yeah. in a way that is beautiful and elegant and simple and easy to comprehend and grasp. So a lot of it is, I wish I could pretend there was some like sort of secret magic, sort of you know weird alchemy kind of thing we do in these processes. But a lot of it is just basic stuff: how to write a headline, how to get your message right, how to how to correctly express where the pain gain equation is in the market. You know, like like an investor wants to go, yeah, there's a problem worth solving here, right? Yeah. And a lot of these guys don't they, they don't actually express the problem we're solving. And because they've looked at someone else's investor deck from they found on the internet, they're like, oh, we're kind of like the Uber of Web3 for decentralized whatever. And I'm like, you're just going to rip all the weasel words and the nonsense out and use proper language, you know? Yeah. So it's like, like a lot of it is like there's no alchemy in here. A lot of this is actually really basic stuff. And when, when you get honest with founders and you go, whoa, stop. The last five minutes, you've said nothing. Yeah. You've actually said nothing. Like, we need to change this whole thing. And 
generally they're all really good. They're they're all like, yeah, actually, you're right. Now you've replayed it to me, replayed our video of the last five minutes to me. Oh my god, I need to change everything. But I think it's also how you, you know you as a mentor deliver that to them, right? Because it would be very easy. You think about the amount of time they spend thinking about this, even rehearsing that pitch, to be told, and even to potentially then see for themselves that it's 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 rubbish. It's just noise. Isn't yeah, isn't a nice message to receive, right? Well, one of the things I've learned in in doing this now, a lot of times with the outlier crews coming through is I try to shift it as much of it to sort of an async. So rather than saying, oh, let's set up a 20-minute call next week on Thursday, or you find some time in my Calendly and good luck with that anyway, it's much more like, let's spend three minutes on the phone. Yeah. Just phone me in this window. We'll spend three minutes going through where you've landed on it. And you can you can say, like, that's really good. Keep going down that path or no, they're still, like, ridiculous. Don't do that. Do this, you know. So I, I'm, I've really become a sort of a fan and advocate for sort of fast cycle mentoring. Yeah. And more, more async-style mentoring. And also holding the companies a little more accountable for doing real work. And by that, I mean record a Loom video of you doing your pitch and share it with me. Don't just set up a call and get on the phone with me and pretend you've prepared the pitch. Because most of the time, they... It's like Peter is doing the pitch. Johannes actually made the slide deck. Johannes sent Peter the pitch five minutes before the call. And Samantha in marketing has quickly polished it all up, yeah. you know, an hour before. And Peter's like, oh, and you're like, no, no, no. Get your shit together. Yeah. Send me a video. I'll give you feedback. So you've got to just keep, I, I, what I've learned is you've got, to, you've got to shift into this async kind of real-time mentoring. And that's where companies can get the most out of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, I mean, it should be obvious, right? An accelerator is called an accelerator for a reason. It's about, it's about literally accelerating their progress. But to do that, the founder needs to have an appreciation of their time and yep. the time of others to be really efficient with it because time is money in a, in a really, in a pressure cooker environment for a startup. You know, you run out of money, you run out of time to be able to get to the point of the next stage, right? Product yep. market fit, closing around. So I think... You know, bringing that discipline of how you advise a startup, I think yeah. it, it begins to um, yeah, transfer two, onto your, that. Your, right? your, your two critical constraints, right, are always capacity and capital, right? They're two axes, right? You you kind of go, I don't have the capacity to do it, and then I don't have the capital to do it. So where do I sit on the graph and where can I allocate time? And the hardest thing for founders to do, a lot of these founders are actually already working 20-hour days, and they're in the grind, and they can't see the wood for the trees. Yeah. And I always say to them, like, you know, you, you, your inclination when you're a founder and there's, say, three or four of you in the business is we, we hunt as a, as a pack, right? We work as a team. And I'm like, that is an illusion, man, because if you're really going to push the ball forward, one of you needs to do fundraising. One of you needs to build product. One of you needs to sell, market, operationalize the business. One of you needs to do that. And you all need to do a bit of coding in the meantime. Yeah. But if all four of you think you can develop the pitch deck, you're not going to get anything else done. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, we, we agree. And I think that's why just even a selection criteria of a team to get into the program requires a certain mix of ingredients yeah. in, in, in people. That's why we love co-founders. You know, we love 
there's to be a technical person and a commercial yep. person yep. because otherwise the commercial person is going to spend the whole program trying to find a technical person and yeah, can't yeah, product. Exactly. It, it might be slightly easier for a technical person to, to find a commercial person or, or to try to learn, you know, the commercial stuff. But ultimately, it's not going to happen in that compressed period of time. So making sure you've got that, that, that right mix of ingredients. And I think, I think encouraging the companies to understand that a lot of the notions that have been sort of idealized out of Silicon Valley, which is my old home, so I'm as guilty as anyone, around finding product market fit and achieving scale and voice of the customer and blah, 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 this sort of stuff, you know. And I'm like, guys, you can't, you can't, none of, everyone's trying to drive you to a perfect state. It's bullshit, right? Sure. And, and what you've actually got to do is you've got to step back for a little bit and go, we're building a product. I just need to find two to three people out there who I think are my customer, who I can take out for a beer and show what I'm building and test on and test them on. So, would you pay for this if I did it? How much would you pay for it? You know, and eventually you you get your building product market fit as you're going. So when you know they're like, oh, we we, we need to get to a hundred customers product market fit. I'm like, that's just bullshit. Yeah. So I, I, I'm like that. that it's not the way it works, you know? Well, I think that's often because there's a lot of time spent talking to VCs that want yeah. everything de-risk. They want yeah, a yeah. Series A company in a, at a, a pre-seed price. Absolutely. And the reality is when you're a pre-seed startup, you're just trying to get to the next week and, and show some traction and whatever it is, you know. As you say, that might be one or two, three customers. It might be that you've rolled out a new feature. It might be that you've unlocked an angel ticket or a friends and family ticket. It's kind of just building up that flywheel and with each week that you can do that, you're, you're demonstrating momentum when you go back and have that conversation. But if the expectation is you need to go away, create the, the, the perfect startup, if you can do that, you're not going to need that VC anyway, right? They're going to be exactly. banging, banging on your door. Exactly. Exactly. So if, if we look at some examples, some like case studies really of, of teams that you've, you've worked with an outlier when they've entered a program, and then gone on to advise, invest in later. I know there are, there are several, some, yeah, yeah. some that you kind of referenced earlier that are close to your heart, but maybe you could give us an example of three of them. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the one I mentioned before was the functional end crew. We did a lot of work on messaging positioning and go-to-market and how you drive demand and how you get that. I mean, they were they literally went down the path of funding off Kickstarter, right? Yeah. So they were like, they were down the what I call the real, the real grungy, you know, let's hack it and make it work path, right? But a very technical team, right? They're a really yeah. deeply technical team. And so, you know, I've sat on as an advisor and and, and work with them on and off and, and always keep a, an eye on them and sort of bother them with, what on earth are you doing this for? Change that, do this instead. And, and so that's worked well. I still am very connected to Hundo and and the team there and talk to Esther a lot about the business and have huge respect for what she's doing and what the whole crew are doing, actually. I think it's it's really, really impressive. And occasionally I talk to Justin over at, at, at Boson. I haven't talked to him for a little bit now, but I'm super impressed with what they've done. I mean, they they are probably one of the going to be one of the big ones, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. And I think they're, they're one of those projects. One of the challenges that we've got as an accelerator, unfortunately, we're not structured as a GPLP fund. So we can get away with being a little too early sometimes. Yeah, yeah. In a way, a, a VC, a, a true VC, technically, Boson is one of those where th when we first started talking to them about this very kind of technical problem, how do you, how do you have a, a digital thing, an NFT, represent a physical thing, and you know, have that represent the ownership 
of that thing and for it to be, be able to be traded, transacted or used as collateral in, in trustless environment, which which sounds a bit esoteric and, and perhaps a problem you just hope somebody else solves, but actually then opens up this whole notion of de-commerce. And so now, of course, people are talking about real world assets. Okay, well, actually, you know what? We, we got to stop just messing around in this echo chamber of crypto to crypto stuff and have this crossover into the real world. And, and for me, I think, you know, Boson is a, a great example of something that people haven't fully realized they need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when they do, and I think it's, it's pretty imminent now, it, it will be uh, a kind of foundational yeah, protocol. I, I, I do too. I do too. And, and what you're alluding to there is one of the keys for me is that some of these companies actually are maturing into being sort of foundational protocols. Yeah. And others are more running on the platforms. They're running on the Web3 ecosystem. They don't need to be, a, they don't need to scale for that extent. They just, right. they just need to monetize the Web3 platform and environment and ecosystem and make it work. So it's been, it's been really interesting though, the diversity of companies. My, my only, I guess not not regret, but the only thing that occasionally I go, oh, geez, is you just want to stay in touch with them all somehow. Yeah. You know, you just you, you come to your earlier point, you kind of wish, oh, we need like to have the outlier like back in my zero days of ZeroCon for outlier and all the companies come together and talk yeah. about where they've got to. And well, ho- hopefully we'll get to do it. But as you say, you know, yeah. the challenge is you, you kind of an accelerator is a particular part in the life cycle, and if you do it well. You know they're off. They're off that, doing their right. thing. Of that's course, right. you have a material stake in it commercially or or emotionally. You want to see them do well. Many of the founders we stay in touch with now, but the the portfolio is you know enormous in the hundreds. Yeah, it's um, enormous. Right. So we we talked about like what what you give founders. What do you get out of mentoring, and in particular mentoring at at OV? It's going to sound a little selfish, but you know the thing I get is a hell of a lot of learning and knowledge. It's like a reverse MBA or Web3 MBA, right? Because you're dealing with people. These are all really smart people, right? Yeah. They're not like, go back to the internet era, you know, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna start one of those e-commerce websites and sell pencil lead or something, you know, yeah. like they're, they're really smart people. So I get a lot out of it because I learn a hell of a lot about what's going on in Web3. And then, you, then you're in this really neat position where you're, you're kind of looking at pieces of the Web3 jigsaw and unnaturally able to put different elements of the narrative of Web3 together and see where patterns are emerging, which is really interesting. Also, it's, it's it, you know, it's just, it's it's hugely energizing hanging with smart people doing cool shit, right? And so you just like get on the call and you chat and it's really energizing. You're like, wow, this is neat. I get this. This is really cool. And then, and the final thing you get is it, it's, I've been a founder, right? I, I, I've built probably what now over 10 companies and, and scaled some of them to be big multi-billion dollar entities. And I know what it's like. It's scary. It's lonely. No person in their right mind would start their own company. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you've done it with Outlier. Like, I sure. you and made it I'm like, well, I don't want to do it again. Put it no, that way. no, no, you don't, right? Yeah. I literally, that's how you feel. Yeah. You're like, you come out of it. I remember once coming out of one of my companies in Silicon Valley and we'd, we'd just sold it. And we'd sold it for hundreds of millions of dollars, but hundreds of millions of less than we could have sold it for yeah. if the VCs had listened to us. Oh, I just went, I'm never doing this again. Fuck, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. And, and of course, like six months later, you're like, woohoo, let's <laughs> yeah. go again. But so that, it's usually humbling, right? Because you're, you're around people who are doing, you can see in their eyes where they're at. You know, right? You know, this is lonely. This is gut wrenching. It's 24 by 7. It's nonstop hustle. 
trying to find investors, trying to get cash in, trying to get to your first customer invoice, trying to make the whole thing work. And so you get a lot of energy from that because you're you're in the thick of helping people build things and you're giving a bit back. That's what I that, that's what I really wanted to do at this stage, right? I wanted to be able to give 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 something back to these businesses and these founders because I know I know how miserable it can be. Yeah, and I think that you mentioned the energy. I think that the sense of optimism yeah. from just being around founders because you've got to be an optimist, hundred percent. And you know, it's quite easy to get jaded jaded in life. But if you're just working with founders all day every day it kind of wears off on you. Well, look, I'd just like to say thanks on behalf of Outlier and, oh, and all thank, the founders thank, thank for you you know, your years no, no, of service, really. I'm looking forward to continuing more of it. Like it's, I'm hugely grateful right, uh, to you and to all the Outlier crew. And I always say it at the end of every every workshop I do, right, is there's all these like little Outlier people in the middle of all the companies, right? And I'm always like, see those guys, that, you know, they're, they're busting their gut for you. You, yeah. you. you make sure you say thank you to them. And, and I'm really grateful for, because they put me in a position where I can actually work with amazing, amazing early stage companies. So, hey, look, I mean, the gratitude's all mine, right? Yeah, it really awesome. is. Well, look, thanks for coming on, Andy. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.